If you're like me, and especially if you're a Princeton student, you'll probably be spending a lot of time indoors in the immediate future, at home or at some place with family or friends. Because of that, getting the groceries you need is more important than ever. With Instacart, it's super easy to shop from your favorite retailers online and get everything you need delivered at a time that works for you. Now, with contactless delivery, you can have your grocery bags safely left at your doorstep. Use the link in the show notes or the link in our Instagram bio to sign up for Instacart and begin ordering your groceries today. All affiliate proceeds that do not go directly into the production of Peas in a Pod will be donated to an organization or cause pitched by a student. About 18% of Princeton undergraduates participate in varsity sports across 37 varsity teams. Princeton prides itself as being one of the largest and most successful athletic programs in NCAA's Division I, as they have won more Ivy League championships than any other school during the last two decades. I'm Susan Beck, and this is Peas in a Pod, Summer Edition, where I virtually sit down with different groups of students and have honest and open conversations about our perspectives on current events, our experiences at Princeton, and pretty much anything that we want to talk about. In today's episode, I talk with three student athletes at Princeton. Their names are Ella Gantman, Jovan Ibakin, and Nick No. We cover perspective, Princeton, platform, and pitched. Listen as Ella, Jovan, and Nick discuss their thoughts heading into this unprecedented academic school year without the ability to compete in their sports, how they feel about other schools dropping some of their varsity sports, why Princeton should diversify their athletes' workouts, how Princeton's athletic program may differ from other institutions, and whether or not non-athletes can ride scooters across campus. We also question the university's most recent decision to go fully online and learn how Ella, Jovan, and Nick each got into their sports. This episode was recorded on August 8th, and as always, thank you for listening. Your perspective always matters. Continue advocating for positive change, and welcome back to Peas in a Pod. All right, so I'm now virtually sitting down with Jovan Ibakin, Ella Gatman, and Nick No or Nicholas No. That's your real name, right? Yeah, either or works. Okay, thank you all for joining me. I know for a lot of us at this point in the summer, we're really tired. We just heard that juniors and freshmen aren't going back to campus. Princeton's all virtual. We're in a really weird headspace right now, at least I am. And also school's approaching. So there's that. Just wanted to put that context out there for this discussion. But anyways, let's begin with some introductions. So let's do names, pronouns, where you're living or quarantining right now, what sport you play at Princeton, and to keep the tradition going, yes or no to pineapples on your pizza. Jovan, kick us off. All right. Hey, guys. My name is Jovan Abakin. I am a member of the men's track and field team. My pronouns are he and his. And I live in Drake, Massachusetts, and that's where I'm quarantining right now. And a very strong and vehement no towards pineapples on pizza. Don't do it. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ella Gantman. I play um, on the women's soccer team at Princeton and my pronouns are she, her, hers. I am quarantining and I live in Washington, D.C. And I enjoy pineapples on pizza. I'm not going to lie, guys. I 
I like don't mind a Hawaiian pizza. It's not the worst thing in the I world. Think, I think that's a DC personality trait. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I would expect that. Okay, next. My name is Nick No. I'm a rising junior. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm on the men's fencing team, and I'm currently quarantining at home in Sacramento, California. And Ella and Javon, uh, you are rising sophomores. Yes, yes. And I'm not a big fan of pineapples on pizza at all. And that's going to make me very unpopular with my girlfriend. It's true. <laughs> okay. Our first feat is perspective, as it usually is. So I'm curious to know what your thoughts are going into this fall as athletes, especially because you're not going to have the same type of year integrated with your athletics. So what are your thoughts? And how do you see yourself navigating that different type of year? Um, we're kind of in a limbo right now. A lot of us don't really know what the future is going to have in store for us, especially winter athletes and maybe even spring athletes, because there's so much that's still unknown about how this virus is going to progress, if there's going to be a vaccine available. So at least for the track team, we have started our summer training and we plan on practicing over the fall. And before the announcement yesterday, the juniors and freshmen on campus were going to practice at the track together, but now that was thrown up in the air. But again, we don't know if we're going to be able to have an indoor season in the winter. That's still a big question mark. So it's kind of hard trying to pretend, well, not really pretend, but trying to continue on as if everything is normal, but at the same time, in the back of your mind, you're knowing, okay, we may not have anything. Just from like the fall athlete perspective, um, like mid or beginning of July, our um, season was like officially canceled. So like it kind of went from that like headspace that Jovan was speaking about, about like pretending that we were gonna have a season or like being in that middle limbo ground to just like, you're not having a season. And um, that kind of the headspace is really hard to continue training, especially when there's soccer is a very interactive sport and almost no clubs are training right now, which is also a really hard thing. You can't really do it by yourself um, in the same way as like certain other sports in terms of training. And I don't know, I think it's been, it's, it's a weird space to be in to know that we're not gonna have a season. And also like coming from my own personal point of view, I had um, a, season ending injury at the beginning of my senior year and so then I didn't play all of my senior year and then in freshman year of college I finally got to play again and now it's going to be like another hiatus period so it's been a very weird space to actually grow my game with all these like really long hiatuses so it'll be interesting. Yeah I agree with Ella like I think the mentality is very similar to that of every other student at Princeton. Obviously, like a lot of students are thinking about what things they would have four times over in their freshman, sophomore, junior, senior year. And for all of us athletes to potentially not have one of our four seasons that we committed and signed up for, it's definitely very devastating for a lot of us. Um, I think an issue with mentality also is that there is no mentality. There's so much up in the air. And as far as like the season's concerned and for all sports, falls, winter, spring, I think it's very unlikely that there'll be any season at all. Yeah. It's one thing to have a season and sort of put an asterisk on it and be like, okay, this is, the you know, like the NBA bubble. It's a season, but it's an asterisk season as, as many sports commentators have caught it. 
And that versus just the cancellation of anything and everything is, it's just a lot. And it ultimately comes down to money, I feel like. Um, And even when the richest schools can't provide that, it's like, okay, no schools can do it. It's also really hard to watch some of like your friends that go to big state schools, big sports schools, be like packing up to like be in preseason right now. Like knowing I would have gone to preseason and like a week and a half if we'd had preseason and watching so many of my friends from club and from back home go into preseason right now and knowing that I might not be able to play competitive soccer for a whole another year is definitely like really hard to watch. I wouldn't be too hopeful about your fellow students at other schools though because we see like like Susan mentioned like institutions like the NBA and Major League Baseball like the amount of resources they had to pull together in order to keep their season going right now is ridiculous. And I don't know if you guys follow baseball at all, but like- It's not happening. It's going to get canceled. tons of issues. People like, just from like going to the casino for the St. Louis Cardinals, they had like seven cases. The Miami Marlins had like 14. So like that's Major League Baseball and all the money and all the institutions they have. So to think that like Princeton Athletics, no offense to the three of us, like could do better. <laughs> Definitely a shot in the dark. Yeah. Honestly, I feel like even though we're seven months in, actually eight months into 2020, we're still trying to salvage this year. We're still trying to make it something that it isn't. I think we just need to accept that this year is going to be different from what it was, what it has been in the past and what it will be in the future. So we just can't, we can't have normal things like we're used to. Yeah, I I was talking about this with a friend earlier today, but... There's a point when we have to, really sadly, but we have to accept the fact that we don't have control over a lot of what's happening in our lives. Yeah, we can complain and rant about how this year would have looked different if our nation's leaders handled it differently. Mm -hmm. I have a personal prediction that um, in Tokyo, the U.S. might have more restrictions than other states going into it. But as much as we can complain about it, it's like, oh, you know, it's too late. And that's what yeah. sucks about it the most because from here on out, we don't have control over our fall and our academics. And for you, your athletics, it's definitely unfortunate. Yeah. 2020 has not been the vibe. We got played. We all stayed up <laughs> and rang in the year. My favorite, like, I saw this thing on my feed on Instagram where it was like, there was like a glorious moment in like the spring when we really thought that we were gonna just have like a three week spring break and then the pandemic was gonna be solved you're gonna see all your high school friends and it was all gonna be back to normal and then we all like yeah and then everything happened really well yeah i was one of those (laughs) hopelessly optimistic people i was like oh yeah we'll be back no worries but little did i know (laughs) people are definitely short on optimism as of now I recorded an episode with Camille Reeves right before we left campus in March. And it was right after we heard the news that we were getting kicked out of campus. And our vibe was, oh, don't worry, students, though. This just means that our reunion in August is going to be so much more fire. And honestly, mm-hmm. I think I held on to that maybe for four or five weeks. But it was at least hope to a bare minimum. And now that we don't even have that and we don't even know what the spring looks like, that's a full year from when we were kicked off campus. Mm-hmm. I, it's insane. I, I definitely held on to hope in a similar way. It's like, oh, in August will be good. But then I was like, wait, maybe not. But in the fall, we'll be back. Everything will be great. And like, mm, not anymore, but. Yeah. On the flip side, though, just to 
reminisce perhaps when you did have athletics and academics. Um, How did you find yourself managing both? Did you sort of approach it going into a school like Princeton that your academics were really, you know, your first priority and your athletics were an extracurricular or was it you entered Princeton as a student athlete and both were sort of going to be at the top of your headspace at all times? I think that varies between different students and different sports. I know that as a freshman, I'm sure for all of us, it's like, it's a really interesting experience arriving on campus. Usually you're dealt with like not knowing anyone, having to make friends immediately, but then you're immediately thrown into like a system of like team and tradition. And so immediately like the culture is so that you would focus on athletics as much as academics, but obviously depending on per person, per athlete, like people pan out, people don't put emphasis on athletics as much as other people might. So I think it varies a lot. I mean, I would agree with that. I'd also like point out that like the Ivy League is one of the only division one conferences that doesn't offer athletic scholarships. So I think that by coming to an Ivy League school for athletics, like it's a clear choice that you've made to like prioritize your academics when you could probably bring your talents elsewhere and get like a fat like athletic scholarship. And then just as a fall athlete, um, I go to like I would go to campus for preseason like two, three weeks in advance, like compared to the rest of the student populace. And like even close to a month in advance of our first day of classes last year. And so I came in as an athlete and I was an athlete for a month and I didn't have to worry about any classes. And then all of a sudden, like a flip switch, I had my first day of classes and all of a sudden I was a student athlete. And so I think that coming in, it's like very shocking because you come in as an athlete and they're running you every day for seven hours. And then all of a sudden you flip a switch and they're running you for two hours and then you're doing seven hours of classes. And it's definitely pretty overwhelming at first. Yeah. For me, it was kind of a struggle finding that balance, trying to see where I was on that spectrum, whether it was athletics that was first or academics that was first. But I think now I've kind of discovered that I don't really have to prioritize one over the other. I can put equal emphasis to both, even though at a basic definition, I am a student athlete. So academics do come first. And as Ella said, Princeton is an academically driven athletic conference, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to neglect my athletic goals and my athletic accomplishments. Yeah, I would definitely second that and kind of emphasize that like athletics oftentimes not to, you know, degrade any other extracurricular, but I often think of it as a lot more than extracurricular just because of the amount of time that goes into it. Um, Like we're waking up at 6am for our lifts and having practices and missing dinner for our practices and it can be travel that's like 20 30 hours a week so I would say our athletics are still really really important in Princeton it does have incredible athletics even though it also has incredible academics yeah how do you feel about other schools dropping some of their varsity sports I know Brown dropped 11 I think Stanford dropped a bunch recently how do you feel about that I heard different opinions and just for if you I mean this is just for any listener who doesn't know context but when Brown cut their 11 they said it had nothing to do with the pandemic and it was just this a decision that they made holistically looking at their athletic program what are your I thoughts think on it I think it's disgusting I think it's embarrassing to be honest um 
I think that with the arrival of COVID-19, like the university saw an opportunity to get rid of programs that they did not find valuable, they did not find like was able to like make money for the school or the institution. So I think all the statements were, am I allowed to cuss, Susan? No, yeah, right? yeah, 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 you are. I think all the statements they made were like complete bullshit. I thought that the statements about how it's the betterment of the student athlete and the the drive, what they used, do you guys know the exact words? They used words like, it was the drive for the betterment of like the student athlete experience or something like that. And that was just complete horseshit too. I think that like, it was just frankly, it's all money driven. It was just really, really sad to see that. I was devastated for, I saw Stanford, they had their men's volleyball team cut and their men's volleyball team, I like saw those like two, three time national champions. So like they're the best in the country at it. I was heartbroken for them. We put our entire lives into our sport and then to go to one of the best universities in the country for that sport and to represent your school, it's, it means the world. And then for your school to like, then cut your program out of nowhere, that's awful. Yeah, I, I really don't, I really didn't understand the motive behind it. And it was done in a very poor manner. Like you recruited a lot of these athletes to come to your school specifically to play that sport as well as excel in whatever academic field that they want to. And then to turn around the next minute and say, oh, well, actually you're no longer a student athlete. That's a complete blind side. I don't know how you could comfortably make that decision and be okay with it. Like if you truly wanted to cut down on costs and slim the varsity sports that you fund, it should be a process that happens gradually over a bunch of years so that you're not still attracting students. I agree. School. It, it was an opportunistic decision. Yeah, and I think, I think there was also a diversity issue um, and, and an equity issue with the specific sports that they chose to cut. I think with Brown, they cut their track and field team and made it yeah. a club sport and track and field. And then with that, they added, um, they made one of their club, I think crew teams varsity. I might be, I might be botching the exact details, but when you, when you even make this decision and say that it's, you know, money or whatever drive for betterment, all these political types of language, and then you start to be very specific with the sports that you decide to elevate. It's like, okay, come on. I, mm -hmm. I just don't, I, to me, it, it was so ridiculous because the Brown story, I was only pointed toward by a friend. It was kind of buried in, you know, in our constant 24-7 news cycle. But these are students in the Ivy League who are, I mean, their identities are being stolen. Yeah. And reading personal stories of these athletes was absolutely heartbreaking. I don't know. There's, yeah. it, you're right. I mean, Nick, you put it well. You said it was disgusting, and it's absolutely bullshit. So, yeah, the the Brown case was particularly disturbing because it the track and field team is one of the most diverse teams in the school. So a lot of kids from black backgrounds, other diverse backgrounds, diverse socioeconomic places they represent they're heavily represented on the team so to just cut it out and then replace it with sailing i think it was is one sailing, of the teams yep. that is predominantly white predominantly wealthy i don't see how that improves the diversity in the school i don't know how that would be a net positive if you truly want a diversity then why not 
include both sports if that's what you're aiming for i don't get it in terms of in terms of positivity even though i'm not in a very optimistic mood currently i do think that like with the removal of some of these sports and with like what you see with social media and people posting about how mad or how disgusted they are by these decisions i think it does increase the care and does increase the importance of like those programs that remain like left over currently i i know that a lot of my friends on the Princeton Swim and Dive team posted about the removal of Dartmouth swimming and they had all these different opinions about that. So I do think it increases like the importance and I do think it increases like to not take things for granted in terms of like your own sport and your own team. So I do think there has been an, not necessarily a positive effect, but a net positive mentality towards the removal of these teams from other teams and what used to be competitors or enemies was now like you realize that like those were your like friendly competition and everyone's in this together for the love of like the sport of whatever was removed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's always like, oh, increased awareness equals increased care, but you can't, it doesn't cancel the actual decision that was made and the actual actions that happened and the fact that these students no longer have their sport. Mm-hmm. But kind of similar to what Nick was talking about, it was really nice to see the cross school solidarity and in the case of the Brown track and field team, uh, the Princeton team, we helped spread the petition that the Brown students created. So there was a lot of social media action. Uh, former Princeton alum on the track team, he wrote an op-ed. I think it was featured on the New York Times. Don't quote me on that. But I think it was really good seeing all these teams, again, that are typically competitors coming together, rallying behind one another. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to Princeton. What does Princeton do well or not do well for their athletes? Or you can talk about what they do well or not do well in general. Um, We've heard definitely a lot of interesting takes on this one over the summer. Well, on the positive side, they do have a lot of really nice gear and swag. So that could be great for me. Um, yeah, I'll just leave that positive there. We'll come back to the negatives. I don't know. I don't speak for any other team except my team or any other coach, but my coach, um, but my coach really prioritizes our academics, which for me, and I know a lot of other kids on my team that are coming to school to be student athletes, um, is really important. If we tell them we're going to be 10 minutes late to a practice, cause we had like, we practice at like 4.30 or 4.45, we had a 4.20, and it went over something and we're going to be a few minutes late. Like he's so accepting and understanding if we have like a mandatory lab that we can't miss, he's super um, like accepting about our academic commitments. If we have an internship interview that we have to go to, I told him once I couldn't make it to a team meeting, super accommodating. And I feel at some schools where there's such an athletic focus where like the athletes are almost treated like professional athletes. Um, at the co- at the collegiate level, like there isn't that understanding that there is an academic portion. So I think at least on my team that that academic portion is pretty highly respected. Right. Like that this wouldn't happen at Ohio State. <laughs> I definitely think that's different team to team because you have different coaches from different places of the world. I know personally I'm dealing with like three different Eastern European coaches, so even though they do have some sort of like responsibility to allow you to have athletic. I mean, academics come first. I do think there's a little bit of guilt you feel when you do miss a practice. If that's good or not, you're up to decide. But like, I do feel like in terms of our fencing team, 
Another thing I don't really think is comparable to other teams is that like our team captains are in charge of disciplinary actions towards people who do miss campus. So in terms of fencing team in, in specific, I'm not a big fan of that situation there because I don't feel like in order to create the best team environment, our own teammates should be like putting disciplinary actions on other teammates. And I think that's ridiculous. Yeah, for the track team, I really liked the the coaches. They were very invested in our well-being across the board, not just in our academic career, but in our life and in our academics. So our coaches were very, very good mentors and guiders for us. And they provided a lot of resources and a lot of, like a lot of chances to learn about how to survive Princeton, what are the best tips and methods. And there were a lot of times throughout the year where upperclassmen organized one-on-one, well, not one-on-one, but team meetings, small group meetings between parts of the team. Wasn't funded by the university, but we just got together just to have conversations, just to get a greater insight on the academic and athletic experience at Princeton. So I did like that aspect. In terms of things like I think Princeton could like work on, I mean, this is like a very just like logistical or technical thing is I don't think we have enough room in terms of like athletic facilities for like lifting. Like anytime I've been in the weight room, there's always been three other teams stuffed in the weight room. And, you know, we're always waiting to do our next set or if you have three teams in the weight room and you really want to use like a 20 pound dumbbell for a set and all the 20 pound dumbbells are gone, you're not going to go try to use a 30 pound dumbbell for that set. So you have to go down to like a 15 or whatever, and you're not getting the most out of that set. So sometimes I do wish that we had more space um, in terms of like our weight room and lifting more racks and just more equipment. Um, and I have no idea how we would accomplish that, but I think Princeton clearly has the resources compared to almost any other school to provide that. Um, yeah, I've always just had like three, four other teams in the weight room every time, and that's been hard sometimes. Now, for me, that's interesting to hear because the track team, we have our own dedicated weight room. So it was very rare for the weight room to be crowded, even though track has a lot of people on the team. Most times I was able to have my own rack or I'd share a rack between a few other people. So to hear that you have to share a weight room with multiple different teams at once, that's that's like so out of this world for me. Are you guys as lift coaches? Uh, I have Angie and we're in the PVC. And I'll see like hockey in there with us or we'll have softball or like volleyball. Like there'll be like any assortment of teams. Football will be sometimes like, like you'll have like six football kids in there. Like it'll just be a whole bunch of kids from teams. I have Jeremy. Um, I don't know if he works with other teams, but as far as I know, he works with track. Yeah, I have Jose. I don't know if you guys know him. Do you guys feel like your workouts are like sports specific? I mean, I guess if you guys, I don't think mine are. Yeah, that's that's another issue that I think I have a little Interesting. Bit. I have a sports specific workout, especially position specific. I'm a goalkeeper, which has a lot of different necessities and other parts of being a field player. And all our workouts are the same. And I also just, I don't think they're sports specific, which that's just my own point. That's so interesting. I can't imagine a basketball workout being the same as a baseball workout. But is that the case? I think there are little differences. I know for fencing, we deal with a lot of like 
footwork and fast twitch muscles. However, we're in the weight room, like doing bench press and like heavy, like deadlifts. And I'm not sure of the correlation between that and fencing. I know a lot of my teammates feel like it's all useless, but I, I think overall, like strength training is good for like body health. I think that overall has a positive impact on like mentality and the way you compete, the way you practice. However, like if you're watching this, Jose, I'm sorry. I love you, man. But like, however, I do think that we do, we waste about like 45 minutes of the hour in the weight room doing exercises that will not impact our fencing. And that's taking place at like, like you said, like 7 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. I think just like personally, like I, I like really want to work on like getting quicker, faster, more explosive. And then I'm doing a lot of really like heavy lifts that are like just making me feel slow and like that type of thing. So that that's the one thing in the weight room that I wish like we would have a sport specific, like if Princeton could offer sport specific lifts and stuff like that. So for you guys, is there a specific workouts that you do that you know other teams also do? Is that the case? I think the more interesting question is there is there a specific workout that you know that you're the only team who definitely does that? Like there's no way another team would be doing that kind of stuff. Well, I mean I don't really know about what happens with other teams when they're in the weight room, but for track at least, just between the individual events, we all have, well, most of us, as far as I know, we have our own workouts that are specifically catered towards what we need to improve on, what we need to focus on. So for sprinters, I'm a sprinter. We focus focus more on fast-paced workouts, improving our speed and reaction times, whereas the throwers, they'll f- focus more on lifting heavier, building strength, upper, upper body strength. So we're all doing different things in the weight room. And our weight room coach actually creates individual workouts for our different event groups. Hmm. We all do the same workout. So I'll just say that for my team. I mean, yeah, I, th- I don't think this, this idea of sports-specific or position-specific workouts would be far out of reach. I can't speak for any athletic directors, but Princeton, you have the money. Well, Susan, in terms of fencing and the fencing body and typical like built of a fencer, there isn't really specific kind. We take all shapes and sizes for sure. And I think that like, it was really interesting to see that like, we're all doing the same workouts, like males and females alike. And then not only that, like if you take what you would imagine a fencer would look like, and like you take other sports that are not necessarily as physically driven as you would say that's football um like i would go down to pvc walk like get some water walk by the weight room and then i'd see like squash i think doing very similar workouts to what we were doing today Mm. so then in my mind i'm thinking okay like squash was in there and fencing was in there doing the same type of shit there's no way there's direct correlation between what we're doing in there and how that's productive for our sport i think there's no way Let's talk about Princeton in general. You're not just athletes. Obviously, you're also just students at the school. So is there anything that comes to mind when you think what Princeton does well for you? When you got to Princeton, what surprised you positively? What surprised you negatively? Things that the school could improve on. So like before I committed to Princeton, I was actually committed verbally um, to the University of Miami um, in Florida. Very different vibe. So that's a very different vibe. It's a ACC school uh, the athletic program is super different and I was committed there for like a few months um, before I committed to to Princeton um, not a few months like a year before I committed to Princeton 
but in terms of like the student athlete experience the way it was pitched was so differently like at Miami they were like you each will have like an individual tutor and they're going to walk you through all your homework and then you're going to have like your specific like cafeteria that's like for athletes with like like meals to go that are like for athletes and like it's it was like the the student athlete experience was so catered to student athletes where I think at Princeton you're so much more involved in like the normal campus like at Miami every student athlete was like rooming with another student athlete like we had random room draw like everyone else we picked our classes at the same time as everyone else when at a lot of big schools they pick classes before um, student athletes that is and I just don't think our experience is as catered to being student athletes which allows us to integrate into the student body more which I like. Yeah I I kind of feel the same about that. I was verbally committed to Brown. Um, and then I got into Princeton and eventually I decided to go to Princeton. So I'm actually a walk-on. I wasn't re recruited for the track team. So I kind of walked into Princeton, even though I was an athlete, I still kind of walked in as a regular student because I was a walk-on. So I kind of had similar but different experiences the first couple of weeks. And I feel like Princeton does a really good job integrating athletes into campus life. I never at one point did I feel like I ha was living a dual life where I had my athlete things going on and then my normal people things going on. It just, it all just intertwined in a really nice way. Anything else about Princeton in general, Princeton for athletes? I feel like, so in light of the, the George Floyd protests and the re-discussion of race relations in the U.S. and basically we're just talking about race and discrimination and diversity a lot more. It's in the public eye, even though these have been issues that our society has yet to fully deal with. And I think, I don't know if you guys follow the Black Ivies story on Instagram but a couple weeks ago there were yeah there were successive Princeton posts with students confessing about issues they dealt with from ranging from the administration to other students or faculty where they were giving out microaggressions or being blatantly racist and I feel like our administration is trying to clear their name but not in a productive way. They're trying to almost pretend as if these things aren't going on. They want to appear as neutral. And there was one incident where a student used an N-word on social media. Now it wasn't, it wasn't in a context directed at someone, but as a white person, he had no right to use that word. But the university's response to it was, well, even though we don't condone that language, we cannot infringe upon freedom of speech. That's one of our core values at the university. And I feel like it was a missed opportunity for Princeton to really take a stance against that type of language, no matter the context, no matter how it was said or why it was said, because we just, we can't just try and pretend like, oh, there's nothing going on. We're going to be neutral. We're going to be not pick sides because the only side we should pick is to make the Princeton environment and the larger societal environment inclusive and respectful for all people. I feel like that needs to improve. Yeah. I think 
just what that comment kind of just made me think of like in terms of race relations and like relating it to athletics is I feel like Princeton something it could work on is definitely like diversity within the athletic department within teams I know at least on the women's soccer team there are very few like people of color at least currently I'm one of very few um, and in the last few years, I've also been one of very few, and I've actually had this discussion with my coach where he, he like recognizes that this is something that has happened. And I think it's not necessarily like his fault or like that because of the pool of players that he's selecting from, at least for women's soccer, there's very much a pay to play system in America, where if you want to play at the highest level, you have to pay a ton of money to go to those showcases or tournaments. And therefore, when coaches are like recruiting, if every single player on the field is white, then it's not really their fault if they're recruiting like a white player or majority white players. So I think that Princeton could, you know, have efforts to have more diverse teams. And that goes back to like cutting the track and field team at Brown. Like you have a diverse team and then you're cutting it like that's ridiculous. And I think that's something that more racial like diversity at Princeton would be very much. And it it can't just stop at diversity, just simply having a diverse background of people on campus isn't going to make the campus any better. You have to actually include them. So inclusivity is the key. You have to make sure that their backgrounds, their stories, their ideas are being valued and being like given a voice and not just used as a showcase or some trophy to show the world, oh, we're diverse. We're doing everything that we need to do. But behind the scenes you're not I agree about the free speech statement I I can't speak for a black student at all but it felt like a big you know fuck you to anyone who had those feelings of being hated as as a black student and I agree that it was a missed opportunity and what I'm curious about is does the university even acknowledge all those mentions in literally you know, now it's probably in the thousands of posts on Instagram where students are commenting, students are uh, mentioning Princeton, Princeton's account in the caption, they're tagging them in the post. When is there a moment when Princeton acknowledges it or even, you know, brings it up? Do I see it doing so in the near future? No. I think, you know, with reputation at stake, with a lot of legal boundaries, they might not be able to, mm-hmm. but the free speech email felt like an active decision to invalidate students' feelings and also to tell people that hate speech is somewhat protected. Here's what's interesting about that. Like Black Ivy stories, all all the posts, they tag the school. And if you go into Princeton's tagged post, Princeton is blocked all of that. So if you yeah, go on Instagram, you won't see any of the Black Ivy stories that that have tagged Princeton because Princeton has somehow censored it so you can't see it which is interesting because this whole thing started with the whole free speech thing and now there's censored speech I don't I'm not saying anyone or anything besides myself but I think that's curious I think Princeton has honestly adopted a policy of we're gonna ignore the problem and pretend it doesn't exist and that's that's just not the right way to go about it you acknowledge it address it Yes, it may be an uncomfortable issue to deal with. Yes, the reputation of the university is in a way at stake, but by not acting and by not acknowledging the issues that have been going on, your reputation is going to be damaged. And I've noticed a lot of prospective students in the comments of these posts have said, 
you know, now I'm changing my mind about how I viewed Princeton. I don't know if I truly want to apply to the university, if I even want to go because of all these stories and accounts being exposed. So they really need to address the situation. I do want to point out, though, that while there were so many Princeton posts, I was curious as to why there weren't as many posts about Greek life. There were so Mm -hmm. many posts about eating clubs, and while they were all valid and needed to be put out there and should not be censored, even though they are being censored, there were little to no posts about Greek life at other schools, and I'm kind of curious as to why that is. Anyways, that was just something interesting that I noted. So even though this piece in a pod episode is an athlete episode, like technically it could also be like a minority episode because all four of us are minorities yeah, in different ways. Um, <laughs> I think it'd be helpful if we could share like personal and our own specific experiences about if you ever felt like racism or discrimination here at Princeton. If you, yeah, if you, if, if you, you feel comfortable to. and if you want to. Honestly, this might, I don't know if it'll come as a surprise, but I don't recall experiencing any racist event or situation. I don't remember any microaggressions. I feel like maybe my experience is an anomaly for Black people on campus, but I, like, I cannot remember anything that happened to me specifically, but a lot of my Black peers have experienced something, whether directly or indirectly. So I think it's just a case-by-case thing but it's definitely a university-wide issue, even though it may not affect everyone. Yeah, for, for me, I personally also have not experienced any form of like racism towards me myself. I definitely heard of other, other people who have, um, besides the fact that like, obviously I'm not entirely pleased with the way our institution handles everything in terms of race and diversity. I do think that I've been very pleased with my group of friends. I feel like socioeconomically, racially, and even internationally, we're a very diverse group and we are not that we are unaware of our diversity however we do treat each other the same and i feel like princeton has been a place where i've been able to experience the most diverse group of people i've been able to in my entire life so in that in that sense i am very pleased with my experience at princeton yeah i would also uh, agree with those those statements i don't think i can't recall like a very specific moment where i've experienced racism at princeton that was like specific towards me um i feel like there's more like cultural kind of like being in spaces and being like hyper aware of my race in certain spaces, like whether that be an Asian American studies class where every single person is an Asian American girl or Asian uh, woman and like being hyper aware of that fact that that's never happened to me before or being in a space where the whole class is white or the whole team is white or the whole lunch group is white or the whole club that I'm with is white, everything like that. I've been hyper aware of my race, but I don't think I've ever had someone say something directly racist towards me. Yeah, I mean, I think the four of us are lucky in sharing that type of experience because obviously that's not universal. I think for me, if I were to think about how I viewed my own race in the context of being a Princeton student, this might not have to do with, you know, my ethnicity, but my upbringing being sort of a 1.5 gen student I looked at groups like Korean Student Association and ASA, um, and I I think I did feel a little uncomfortable in those spaces when I was, I might have felt alienated as a whitewashed Asian American. 
Um, I think there is that sort of sense. I've heard of elitism within different affinity groups for like, if you don't speak that language, if you're not fluent, if you're not first gen, then there is a difference and you're sort of alienated. Again, I know the reason why, and I don't think, you know, I don't think there's a problem with people feeling closer with other people who share a similar culture. So there's no problem with that. But if I were to think about my own experience, I think I might have tried, honestly, to act more white or act more of a certain type of person because I know that I come from a place that is already predominantly white. So I can't act quote unquote Asian. And if I tried to, I would fail in the eyes of others. So I I'm think curious, that, what is yeah. what does acting Asian mean? Right. So acting quote unquote Asian, what I would I think that refers to is joining, you know, ASA, KSA, speaking Korean for me because I'm Korean, Korean to other students, having a lot of Asian friends. These are stereotypes. They're damaging. I'm not supporting them. But I think there is a polarization of identity, whereas I think I did sort of feel going into Princeton that I had to decide who I was going to be in the context of background. And I don't think any student should make that decision. I feel like I was in a very similar boat as you. There were a few points during the fall semester where I felt like I really wasn't interacting with a lot of Black students. I wasn't, even though I attended a few Black Student Union events. I went to a BAC show one time. So I was trying to go to these Black spaces, but at the same time, I felt like I wasn't interacting with them enough. And I mean, part of my issue maybe is because I'm from Drake It, from a 88.8% white town, I've never been used to being surrounded by a large population of Black people ever in my life. Like, that's never been my situation. So I feel like my default is to just be in white spaces, predominantly white spaces. So it was a little hard for me to kind of branch out and go to these dedicated Black spaces. So part of me kind of felt like I wasn't really being Black. Like, I wasn't being my full authentic self because I wasn't going to these events. And when I did go to these events, I felt like I wasn't authentic enough because I didn't really share similar experiences that they did because I'm a first generation American. So it culturally, I don't really, I didn't really go through what a lot of black people that have been in this country for generations went through. So that was something that I kind of had to juggle with. And what you said, Nick, about going to Princeton and that being the most diverse place you've ever been in, I've heard the exact opposite. I think, you know, it does depend on where you come from before Wait, Did college. I say it was not the most diverse place or did I say it was like the most diverse you place? Said, I think you said it was the most. Yeah, it's the most, right? Yeah. I, I've heard, I for me, I went, I came from a neighborhood that was around the same um, in terms of diversity, but students who come from communities that are not predominantly white and then going to Princeton and being like, okay, this is the whitest place I've ever been in. So there's also, you know, everyone has different experiences. That's kind of like how I felt. Like, honestly, I'm from Washington, D.C. And my school was like around 40% black and 30, 20, 25% Latino. And like white people were like a minority at my school. And like, it was interesting coming to Princeton and like 
seeing so few black faces, honestly, because I went to a school where like one in almost two faces were black faces and like the culture was just different. And yeah, I think it was just like very like shocking. And then also I'm like as a like going into a place that's 20% Asian as like at my school in DC, there aren't actually that many Asian people is like less than 5%. And as someone that's adopted and super whitewashed and I identify more with my Hispanic side because my adoptive parents are Hispanic than like being Asian. Like coming into this space was just so shocking because for the first time I'm surrounded by people who look like me, but yet I don't identify with them in like the culture and like being part of like any of the groups like Susan said, because I don't speak the language. I never grew up with that culture. Um, like my family's Hispanic. I joined like Latinos, uh, Latinos y Amigos, like Amigos y Latinos. So I like started going to some of those events. I also was so scared to go to those events because I haven't always been comfortable like like identifying as Latin, even though both my parents are like, even though my parents are like, it's just been such a mix. And it was so, it was super interesting to like show up at Princeton being like, I don't know how I identify, what to identify as or like, yeah, very interesting. Even though like, I think that definitely that was a struggle for you and like you're identifying when you get to Princeton, which makes total sense. I think people like you are very important in order to diversify the campus because it's not just people who belong into these 20 different groups of like Latino, Asian, white. Like I think that people like you who are confused, who do bring different things like appearance separate from culture, which is separate from like upbringing, which is separate from right. where you grew up. I think those specific unique situations, even though like it does allow you to be confused, I think those are very, very cool and a very, very unique and very, very important for people on campus. Yeah, and I feel like for me, based on where I grew up being a very predominantly white town, Princeton for me was a very, very diverse school, more diverse than I'd ever experienced. But it wasn't just diverse in terms of racial backgrounds, but I think socioeconomic and geographical diversity. So I've met so many people from different countries, different states, different cultural backgrounds from just within this country. So that's been really good, just getting to know other people's stories, how they grow up. Like one of my very good friends, she grew up on a farm in rural Alabama. And there's no other place where I'd be able to get to interact with someone with that specific background and story than at a place like Princeton. So I really, I've enjoyed that aspect, just getting to know different people. I think that's one of the biggest pluses of going to a global institution is meeting people you would have never known otherwise. I, I feel the exact same way. Obviously, diversity does not only exist in ethnicity and race. So I agree. Politics, ideologies, cultural mm -hmm. backgrounds, it's all there. And it's definitely a lot more enlightening if there's more of them than, you know, everything being homogenous. Okay, so... I've heard that Princeton is considered one of the more conservative Ivies. Have you guys heard that? I've heard, I think it's Dartmouth and then we're next. Okay, now that's kind of interesting to me because almost everyone, if not everyone that I've interacted with has been liberal and had very liberal viewpoints and beliefs. So I really haven't encountered people who are fall more on the conservative side of the spectrum. So I, I want to know where they are. Like, I genuinely want to have a conversation with them. I feel like, honestly, like, 
I haven't interacted with anyone that's been like, I don't, I don't want to say like out as like a conservative, but I feel like almost culturally, like people like don't want to like talk about their conservative beliefs super loudly. So like, I don't, I don't feel like I've met that many people, maybe a few that I've maybe but I, I don't know that's like interesting because I've definitely heard that Princeton's like one of the more conservative Ivies but mm-hmm. I don't think anyone's like that proud except maybe you know one person to be like super conservative and well I think it's also like we become friends with people who are like us so that is true but uh, I don't know because I don't consciously select people based on right no right culture. yeah but it, it's a natural it's, it's an organic it's an organic process it just happened yeah that is so interesting. Nick, were you going to say something? Yeah, I wanted to go back to the part where we were talking about like the overwhelming amount of white people. I think something should be said about the fact that like these white people are not usually actually white and the majority of them are Jewish oh, at Princeton yeah. in specific. So even though like appearance wise, they may like look white, like I would say that near like 30 or 40% of what we perceive white people are actually Jewish people. That, that is an interesting point. And they can see themselves a minority. That is something I did notice. There were a lot of Jewish people or of the Jewish faith, more than I'd ever come in contact with in my previous experiences. In D.C., there's so many Jewish people. Like, a lot of our schools take Jewish holidays off. I was so surprised when I was, like, 10 or 12, and I learned how few Jewish people are actually in, like, the world. Like, it's, like, 1% of the world, but, like, 30% of my, like, the white kids at my school are Jewish, like 40% of the white Same kids. Same here. I, I went to a lot of bat mitzvahs for sure. Exactly. If I knew one Jewish guy growing up in my entire childhood in Sacramento, California. I don't think I knew any, as far as I know. Okay. Platform, uh, recurring P, we've done this so that guests can talk about anything they want to. So this is when I open the quote unquote mic for you to talk about anything you want, organization, cause, issue. Or you can pitch your own discussion topic and ask any of the rest of us a question. Yeah, I just have a question for Isaac Gruber. Like, was this a plan all along, just opening up the university and having this elaborate <laughs> plan? Like, him walking into the office one day, and be like, oh, August twelfth. Like, this is this is a date. Like, this is the day where I tell them what's actually going on here. I have the same question. People are asking: Is was this meant to decrease the pool of people who wanted a gap year? I don't know. At the same time, they extended the deadline. For, <laughs> right, 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 right. Maybe they have some sort of algorithm where, like, they figured out, like, okay, we do need to come across this. That was not the case, that this is a plan all along. And the algorithm tells us that if we extend it to exactly August 12th and not a day later, <laughs> we'll still have people taking gap years, like, under, under max capacity. We have the smartest people in the world. So if anyone was going to figure out that algorithm, it was going to be some, like, CS professor. <laughs> That's true. I can't, I cannot speak for President Eisgruber, but I do think, if I were to guess, I don't think this was the plan all along. I think it definitely had to do, I don't know the technicals, but it had to do with the New Jersey policy. I know they reached a certain number of cases and they made it very hard for students to learn in person. I'm not, I'm not at all defending Princeton's decision mm-hmm. to switch last minute, but timing is, timing's bad. Yeah, it it just came out of nowhere, out of the blue. I was not expecting the announcement at all. My friend texted me, like, open your email, and I saw it. I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> when I read this, I thought it just meant that classes are remote. 
Because, like, I got a text saying, for any of you in the group chat, saying, for any of you who haven't seen this yet, and I opened it, it says, Princeton classes are remote in the fall. And I was like, okay, like, I wasn't really planning on taking any in-person seminars anyways. Then, like, I got the campus message. It says, like, everyone, nobody can come back. And, ugh, like Cancel an off-campus lease. It was horrible. I just don't understand how they reached that decision. What was the, the driving point that pushed the university to get there besides the New Jersey policy? What I'm genuinely curious about besides that is like how some of the Ivy League universities are like, just like, oh, we're bringing all our students back. Like, yeah, it has to be, Penn, that has 14,000 and 10,000 people respectively, or like, we want them all. Like, I think that has to do with institutions. Like, for example, if we take Penn as an example and their students coming back, like they're integrated into the city of Philadelphia and therefore like they can not offer campus housing to people and they can still find off-campus housing. Whereas Princeton, we're in a square like mile radius of like a mile and a half, I think. And we're all there and there's no really other places for us to live. So I do think that like situationally different if you compare Princeton to other schools that are like similarly situated and like isolated, like Princeton, like Dartmouth or Cornell. However, that doesn't make sense either because Cornell students are going back, so. We are a bubble. Like, doesn't that make it easier to quarantine? I just don't, I don't know. I think so. I think, I mean, I guess I can't really speak on what their thought process was, but what I'm assuming is they're just concerned that in the event that there was an outbreak, the university doesn't have enough resources or space to properly move people around and they just don't want to deal with all those logistics and all those ifs and it would just to them be safer to keep everyone home but i don't know do you guys predict that all our friends who are going back to school that don't go to princeton are people going to be sent home yes i think so yeah Again, like uh, Nick said at the beginning, like we have professional basketball, like baseball teams, every resource in the world, multi-million dollar like contracts, all this stuff going on and they can't keep their players safe. You're going to tell me a state school is going to keep 50,000 students that they can't control. Yeah. yeah, I think the NBA is the only one who's kind of doing well. Well, they're they're living in a prison, so. It's not a prison. Do not it's call the NBA. <laughs> Do not call the Orlando bubble prison. But yeah, you're right. Like the length that they had to go to, even with all of their millions, was so extreme and can really only occur in one scenario, which is the NBA. But I'm glad for it um, as a viewer. Ella, did you want to talk about Pole Hero a little bit? Yeah, I can do that. Why not? Why not plug plug the project I started for fun. Um, so I started a project called the Pole Hero Project like a month ago with a few other Princetonians, including um, a student athlete on the men's basketball team, just to bring it back to the athletic <laughs> theme, but a group of uh, like four or five of us. And we're led by um, a guy named Avi Stopper, whose wife went to Princeton. So that's the connection to Princeton. He went to Wesleyan, I believe, and then went to U Chicago. So the Princeton connections through his wife. But we started an organization called the Pole Hero Project, and we're trying to sign up young people to become poll workers. Um, there's a huge deficit of poll workers um, in the primaries uh, this past year because of COVID um, and other reasons, of course, too. But COVID being so serious to old people and the majority of poll workers being old people or like seniors, we have 
a huge deficit and therefore uh, polling places closed. Um, in Milwaukee, where there was supposed to be 180 poll, uh, polling locations, only five stayed open because of the number of poll workers. And it leads to a ton of voter suppression. Um, a lot of people that work hourly wages can't afford to wait in line for three, four hours um, because they lose their, uh, their hourly wage. And that almost functions as a poll tax, which was technically outlawed, but it, it does function as a poll tax. So we are trying to get as many poll workers and young people involved as possible. Um, we've, in the last two and a half weeks since we or launched our website, we've registered over 1,100 poll workers. So we are trying to just uh, build that momentum. We're spreading our team out, going city by city um, to the cities that need us the most. And we hope that any young people that are interested will register with us at pollhero.org, so That's yeah. awesome, yeah, I'll link it in the show notes. Go sign up if you can. All right, anything else for platform? Okay. All right, we're on to Pitched, which is answering questions from listeners. There are a couple juicy ones. I will not lie. Tea will be spilled. <laughs> Number one. Okay, this one's not as juicy, but it, it is a little juicy. Do you think that student athletes should be hyphenated? I, I don't is it, wait, is it hyphenated already or no? It's argued as, you know, if you hyphenate student athlete, why don't you hyphenate student whatever? Um, mm -hmm. It is sort of the one and only student designation that usually is hyphenated. I think less and less. Well, like if someone's an actor, like, are they like acted? Like, why aren't they like a student actor? Something like that. Or like a student musician. Student musician. musician. Mm -hmm. I understand the question. Mm -hmm. They could take that away from me if they want. Like, I don't have. Yeah, any. I don't. I don't have. <laughs> okay, yeah, not a big deal, basically. I mean, my want to cancel student hyphen athlete. Like, I'm all ears. It's all yours. My initial reaction was yes, but if the hyphen were to be removed or not added, that wouldn't bother me. I don't know. Just from a linguistic perspective, it makes sense to have that hyphen because. Fundamentally, student and athlete are different concepts. So the you hyphen is needed. Yeah. I'm not a linguist. I'm, my terms may be off, but like to me, the hyphen is needed. Student so, poll worker would not be hyphenated, though. It should. <laughs> <laughs> okay, basically, you 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 aren't protective over your hyphens. No, but it just looks better aesthetically speaking to have the hyphen. Fine. <laughs> okay can non-athletes ride scooters why or why not no no oh I no. Will you're not going all the way to caldwell every day that's like where are you walking we go to caldwell every single day baby girl you can you can walk up the hill you're fine <laughs> yeah your legs aren't dying after lift you can go up oh you're good <laughs> unless you have a reason you need a scooter like a legitimate yeah. reason <laughs> But unless you're making the trek from Jadwin all the way to your dorm every day, no, you can use a bike. I actually use a bike. I don't use a scooter, but don't, if you're not an athlete, don't touch the scooters. That's our, <laughs> that's the one thing we claim. That's our cultural identity. It's our culture. Yeah. It's cultural, it's cultural appropriation. appropriation. <laughs> you can put a hyphen between athlete and scooter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Fair. So no scooters for non-athletes. That's for pre-frosh, not knowing about that, especially if you don't, you know, you're not living on campus, so you don't really know what we're talking about. It's so funny. It's become so ingrained into the Princeton culture that this is how I find out that students are athletes. 
Like yes. I will I will have a classmate that I meet in precept and you know, on our way out, it's like, oh, got to ride. And, you know, we can't talk on our way out of class because they're hopping on their scooter and I'm walking <laughs> at a snail's pace. And I'm like, hold on. <laughs> Wait, we can't be friends just because, <laughs> just because you decide that you want faster transportation and I'm socially barriered from it, like socially barred from it, I'd, I should say. Yeah, I haven't thought about that aspect. I mean, because I don't have a scooter, I most of the time I just walk because I enjoy walking. But As a scooter person, if someone doesn't have a scooter and I want to talk to them, I will, like, walk my scooter with them. Uh, yeah. Susan, unfortunately, I feel like that specific athlete didn't really want to talk to you because if I, like, <laughs> wanted to talk to you, I definitely gotten off my scooter. Okay, okay, fine, fine. Um, I wasn't really thinking about a specific one, but there definitely have been cases. I, I think it's more or less like I don't it's not that we wanted to talk out of class, but you know, it's you didn't me, have the opportunity. It's like that's just me learning that they're an athlete, like at that point, right? It's not them being like, This is my sport. It's then then I'm guessing what sport they play. Then I look at their backpack. <laughs> if oh, yeah, I see some field hockey sticks and I know what I know what sport they play. <laughs> okay. Things you regret doing or not doing during your first year. <laughs> hmm. I Definitely regret not doing more. I think I was too careful. I was like, I don't want to mess up. I don't want to have too much fun. I don't want to get too involved and be overwhelmed because I was very nervous about being able to balance my school life and my athlete life. So I didn't really get involved with a lot of campus groups and initiatives. And that's something I want to change moving forward because I know I can fit it in. I don't just have to have this dichotomy in my Princeton experience. I need to have multiple things going on. So things I regret not doing are definitely being involved more on campus. I definitely came in thinking I was only gonna have time for school and for athletics. And there's definitely much more time to do many other things and be involved in other things on campus. As far as that clubs and other groups, I definitely wish I branched out more my freshman year Things I regret doing is like things you do in freshman year, like cause reputation that will follow you like, throughout your entire time here at Princeton. It's a small community. So for me, like there was a team pregame, in which case like I had a shot of something and it was like my duty as a freshman to like follow that shot with a raw egg. And then it was not, this is not hazing or anything. This is just like a dare from like one of my captains at the time. And like I had done that and had been like on people's stories. And then like through my sophomore year, like I would meet people and they would know me for that. The raw egg dude. <laughs> oh, like you're Nick, like egg Nick, like that Nick. So I do think like as a freshman for you pre-frosh out there, like be careful what you do. Obviously like my joke, my like situation was kind of a funny situation, but like definitely be careful because shit falls at Princeton. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would say my thing that I regret, I wish I could do slightly differently, would be to pop the athlete bubble a little bit earlier. For me, I got so comfortable in just going to like my team's pre-games and then only going to the eating clubs that I could get passes from my team like to get into. That first semester, I loved my team, but I only stayed within that social group, which was like my team and then the friends that they were teams with. 
Um, and then second semester, which got cut short, unfortunately, is when I had started like kind of expanding and like becoming more friends with NARPs. You can be friends with NARPs. That's a yes, option. Um, and uh, just kind of going to other like pre-games, other like eating clubs that aren't like Cottage and Cannon, like in like kind of expanding my reach. And I kind of wish I'd done that a little bit earlier. I'm honestly, I'm on the, I had an opposite experience. I feel like I didn't interact with my team as much as I would have liked. I most of the pregames and events that I went to were with my NARP friends and not with my athlete, my teammates that much. And I feel like it was, I missed a lot of experiences that I could have had with my fellow Frosh on the team. I feel like they bonded really strongly. Like I'm good friends with all of them, but I feel like I didn't bond as well with them because I really wanted to have friends and experiences outside of my track experiences but I think I took it too far to the other end of the spectrum so I, I want to try and find a balance. Do you have anything that you don't regret doing or that you're really glad you did do? Um, I have to say I'm glad that I was willing to step out of my comfort zone like the first couple of weeks I was very bold and unafraid to just go up to new people that I didn't know, have random conversations with people in the dining hall or on the way to class. And by doing that, I was able to meet so many new people from various backgrounds. And now, before we got kicked out of campus, I was able to walk around campus and recognize at least one person, no matter where I was. And I feel like that's such a good feeling that I'm able to fall back on so many different people no matter where I am, just to interact. I'd say I, from a different point of view, I was so glad I got a campus job um, at the beginning of, of my experience at Princeton. I like got a job with Campus Rec. And then in like February, I got another job with Annual Giving and Tiger Call. So having like, I didn't think I would be able to balance like soccer and school and a job in less even less like two jobs but it was so nice and like honestly so many of the campus jobs are really flexible so if there's any pre-fosh watching you can have be a student athlete and you can also have a job and make some money nick anything positive besides the egg situation um besides the egg situation i definitely feel like i was happy to find a good friend group my freshman year both outside and inside within the team itself so i feel like i had a good balance between the two of them Another thing that I, I'm glad I did is I explored the campus a lot on my free time or even when I was trying to find a new place to study, I just walked around and wandered. And I feel like I was able to really appreciate the beauty of Princeton and really discover these new hitting nooks and crannies all around. So I'm glad I did that. Okay, tips on virtual learning. I'd say it's valuable, especially because we kind of went through the spring, even though it started in person, so it was a little different. I'd say if you have any pre-recorded classes, if you can, take it when you'd normally have that time slot, like, or if you have, like, if your professor just sends out slides or a video or, like, whatever, they, your professor sending out as, like, a class replacement, take it when that class would have been scheduled, because you don't want to find yourself, like, three weeks behind on lectures, and then all of a sudden you have a paper due in two weeks, and you have to make up all the lectures, and then. Yeah, I second that 100%, and I think it's an important to avoid staying in your room or going back to your room in between classes, 
it's hard because you're at home and your bed is a place of comfort. But there were a lot of moments where I told myself, okay, I'm just gonna rest for 15 minutes. I'll just close my eyes, recharge, and then I'll knock out. And <laughs> obviously that's not good. So I think it's good to find a dedicated space to where you wanna do your work or multiple spaces and try and stay there for as long as you can, but also give yourself the opportunity to move around, whether outside or move to a different part of the house, but just stay away from your, your bedroom when you're not trying to sleep. That's a good one. Yeah, I think that like, it's really important to keep to a strict schedule. Otherwise everything just gets like worked together, whether it's like sleep, eating, classes, studying, like all of it just gets really, really muddy. And I don't think that's beneficial or helpful for a healthy study. And another thing, try and schedule regular Zoom calls or phone calls with your friends so that you don't lose the social aspect of the student life. I think it was very important for me to continue having conversations with people. So every now and then I would reach out to someone I hadn't spoken to in a while just to make sure that they're doing well or just to hear their voice so that I don't feel isolated even though I'm by myself. In terms of academics, uh, whether you're on campus or virtual, I'd always say like office hours, office hours, office hours. I kind of went into my first office hours like so scared. Like my professor was also an assistant dean of the college and I was like, what am I doing? I don't know how to write. I just got a B minus on my first paper in this class. Like why did I come here? It's so embarrassing. But, um, you know, I ended up getting an A in the class because I would constantly go to him like to office hours after that and he would like really tell me like this is what I want to see in your paper and then you know get rewarded for figuring out if you're so confused about an assignment just go and ask them like what did you mean by this um professors sit at their office and they have to have like a certain amount of office hours a week so if you don't go then they just have to sit there and wait for someone to show up because they have to have like a designated amount of hours so I would just go and a lot of professors really like their subjects um especially if you're like at a like a higher more niche subject they're really passionate and they like talking about it so professors really really want to help like my physics professor he was practically begging us to come to his office hours because he's so so passionate about it and oftentimes I found myself feeling embarrassed to ask for help and I feel like we just need to remove that stigma it's okay to not understand what's going on or to not be able to produce your best work because these professors they they're here to help us that's their job so it's really important to just kind of put that embarrassment aside and just go and help improve yourself especially when princeton is not a school where you know each professor has 200 kids yeah you know we have a unique opportunity you know a lot of our classes it's like 12 15 kids so definitely take advantage of that proximity that you can have okay tv movie and book or and or book recommendations like new or in general anything Summer's closing, so before people get swamped up with work, what do you think people need to start binging or getting on? I binged All-American, but I don't know if I'm recommending other people to binge (laughs) All-American, so I'll just say that. Yeah, I just finished Friends for the first time, and it took me three years to watch watching it really slowly, but now that it's over, I feel a little bit empty. And uh, movie-wise, if you guys haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the most recent Quentin Tarantino movie, that's a really good one. 
I don't think that's his best film. Go watch go watch Django Unchained and Glorious Bastards. Well, like if you're into if you watch any of the Tarantino movies, you should watch all of them because they're all amazing for their own reasons. But definitely the best ones are Inglorious Bastards, Pulp Fiction, and Django. Oh yeah, Pulp Fiction for sure. I'm a huge Tarantino fan as well. Okay, I know this was very popular at the beginning of summer, but when Netflix released Avatar The Last Airbender, I strongly re- recommend binging it. I used to watch that show as a kid and it was super fun and exhilarating to re-watch it, but from now an older perspective to kind of pick up on things that I miss when I was younger. And I honestly, I really enjoyed re-watching the series. So I 10 out of 10 recommend it. Yeah, my brothers keep bullying me into watching that because I haven't finished it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, I have an anti-recommendation. Do no. not watch The Kissing Booth 2. Don't do it. I, I did. And I was it, about to. It was painful. Okay, I'll rephrase that. You can watch it, expect to hate it. And if you don't hate it, then I think you have you have some wrong beliefs. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely despised my time consuming oxygen while watching that film it's the type of movie you watch to clown though you know you like just sit there with like friends and you clown it the whole time okay this is okay i i'm not gonna rant about this for too long but i think my problem with it is because i know how many kids grow up watching that film from elementary school and there are so many problematic things that happen in it such as like the girl cheats on her boyfriend and then they just say i love you and it fixes everything there's you know a token gay couple like usual which netflix needs to stop doing um it's so bad and i don't like the main character i don't like her boyfriend i don't like her best friend i don't like any of them and netflix wants to wants us to root for that so at this point i don't know i i just feel like if you grow up watching that film and thinking okay cheating is normalized being a shitty friend is normalized i i think that's unhealthy i don't know that's just my rant everyone everyone the best friend is a bad boyfriend and a bad friend the boyfriend's a bad boyfriend the friend that or like Marco, whatever, the other man is also just a bad guy because he like lets her cheat with him. I, like, I, I liked like Marco. Okay, I didn't hate Marco. I kind of felt him um, because I'm, I'm, I'm usually that friend who's like, I will give you advice on getting the heart of the person I actually don't want you to get the heart of because I, I have feelings for you. Like I've been in that position. But Marco is a 28-year-old actor. Like it really took a 28-year-old to be in a high school film to act mature. <laughs> Anyways... Your the top left corner or your rectangle on my screen is starting to get a little hot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I need to stop talking about that film. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Do any of you follow the NBA at all? I know Nick, you kind of do, right? A little bit, yeah. I don't. I do not anymore. Okay. Yeah. Nick, so this question's for you, Nick. Who do you have winning the title? Uh, obviously like I want to say the Lakers however like if you watch the Clippers and the Lakers battle I think there are a lot of concerning things going on there with the way the Clippers played and how well of a team they are so my bet would be the Lakers still however I think things are up in the air and with COVID and people's long break I think things are even more up in the air than they should be yeah I'm a I'm a huge LeBron James fan obviously I want the Lakers to win They've played the worst out of all 22 teams so far in the bubble, so I'm so nervous. But I still have them winning because I'm hopeful. Okay, those were all the questions I had. Do you have any questions for each other? 
Mm. What's fencing like? <laughs> that is a good question. What does it feel like when like the sword hits you? Basically, there are three different weapons. Like two of them are like poking style, where like for example, foil is like a poking style, in which case like you have to hit like the vest or like bib of the mask. And then like there's a little button at the end of the sword that like as if it hits that part of the vest, which is like electric and conductive, the light will go off. And then Epe is like also poking where there's like a button at the end of it, but like it's full body target. The one I do is called Saber and it's just waist up target, anything waist up. And then there's no button at the end of it as long as you just make any sort of contact. So it's more like a slashing, like cutting motion rather than like a poke. Does it hurt? Like not really. I think like if you ever like played paintball, like that like you, even though like you would think it, hurt, it would hurt if you're just standing there and like someone shot you with a paintball gun, like with the like adrenaline, sometimes you don't even feel it. However, they're like, sometimes things happen where like, they can hit you in like the leg or like they can hit you like rather hard if they're like rather aggressive fencer. But overall I'd say like it doesn't hurt. It's really hurt at all. Now, how did you get into fencing? So by the age of seven, I had done like every other sport known to man, including the two you guys do. And my parents had determined that I would like be horrible at everything. And so like, at seven, I went to a fencing club, and I also was apparently horrible at that. I don't know why I had such judgmental parents when it came to this. I was seven. <laughs> but then, like, I begged them to let me, like, stay in it and do it because I really enjoyed it. And then that was that. That's really cool. I can't think of any fencing academies, if that's what they're called, or fencing groups in my area. I, I'm curious. I'm sure there are some, but that's, that wasn't a sport that was very prominent where i live it's definitely not like everywhere in the u.s for sure yeah since the track team's like a lot bigger than like a lot of other teams like what's the dynamic like because like for us we have like 28 people and like our in each class there's like six or seven people so we can all get really close really easily it's an interesting dynamic so and is there a dynamic between like the runners and the ones that like throw stuff i okay so for the guys at least we're all one big team, one big fam. That's the larger dynamic. How big is it? Um, I'd say, don't quote me, but almost 40 to 50 people, maybe not, maybe I'm exaggerating, but it's, it's a large team for guys. With girls, even more. But just within the guys team, beyond our the larger family, yeah, we do subdivide into the throwing squad and the the running squad and we do have i i won't don't want to say closer relationships but because we're going through the same workouts and we're struggling through the same things we do kind of interact differently but at the end of the day we're all one big team but when you incorporate the girls we also interact with them a lot so the whole track club like under the roof and jadwin we're like a, a huge sister squad, brother squad, but we all, at the end of the day, divide into our little camps. What event do you do? I don't think you said it. Oh, I do hurdles. Can you show us some? Um, here? No. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way that you can listen to a hurdling um, action happen over a podcast. One, I don't have a hurdle at home, so I can't really demonstrate two. 
Um, I haven't hurdled in months, so I may injure myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hurdling is really fun. I actually stumbled upon it on accident. Same with track. My, one of my friends got me to do track in middle school after we were playing some school-wide game and she noticed that I was really fast. She's like, you need to join track with me. So I did. And then with hurdles, um, my sophomore year of high school, my friend wanted to try out hurdles and she didn't want to be alone for the first practice. So she asked me to join her. I was like, sure, why not? Let me just <laughs> see how it goes. And I happened to have a knack for it and I just continued on, so. Now that we're on the topic, Ella, now you have to briefly explain how you got into soccer. Um, I got into soccer. Well, my family's from Argentina, so, like, they, like, live, breathe soccer. So, like, they, they were already, like, putting a soccer ball in my hand, like, from when I was little. And I played in this little Jewish league because my family's also Jewish when um, I was little. So I'd play on Sundays with, like, all these Jewish kids when I was really little. But then, I don't know, I started when I was getting older, I started playing on a boys team because there weren't any like competitive girls teams in my area back in like what 2005, 2006. And they like sucked. So then I decided to be goalie for the team because like I was like, you guys can't stop the ball from going in the goal and we keep losing. So I was like, I'm going to go be goalie now. And then I just kind of like really liked it. Like I kind of liked throwing myself like around and kind of like doing all the goalkeeping stuff. So I kind of stuck with it. And through like until I was like 12, I did goalkeeping and playing on the field and like being a like attacker until I was like 12 and then when I was 12 like my coach was like you need to like specialize in something or like 11 they're like you need to start specializing in something that you want to like get good at and I liked goalkeeping more because I hate running no offense Jovan and so (laughs) I have have a love-hate relationship with running so I feel I feel your sentiment okay final words before we leave this was fun I don't have anything, but thank you, Susan. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity. It was really nice having a conversation and just getting to hear everyone's experiences and perspectives. Yeah, I just, I wish our Princeton community a good luck for the next year. Looks like I'll be seeing you guys in the next fall. And let's let's be optimistic. Okay, let's not bring that into the universe, Nick. Yeah, we don't need that negative energy. So I'm going to- No, I was was getting some positive energy there. (laughs) Shout out Susan and Alicia for putting together this amazing podcast. I think it's super cool that you guys are giving students a bunch of different students' voices. So shout out you guys. Give them a follow on Instagram at Peas in a Pod. I didn't have to do it. You did it for me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, that's all the peas we have. But be sure to stay tuned actually for our next episode, which will be our final episode for the summer. I actually sit down with Alicia. She's never been on an episode. She's kind of this mysterious being that exists behind the scenes. And... We're basically going to be telling the story of this podcast, what we want it to do moving forward, answering questions, all that fun stuff. Javon, Nick, and Ella, I appreciate you coming on and joining me for this super fun, meaningful conversation. Hopefully, I see you on campus not too far in the future. Thank you. Mahershala Ali, who has won two Oscars, but who also was a college athlete at St. Mary's playing basketball, once said, Your life, your circumstances change, and you have to continue to grow as a person, and once you have means and opportunity, you have to make different choices to protect what you have. Peace in a Pod is a podcast created and edited by Susan Beck. Our executive producer is Alicia Somani. Follow us on Instagram at Peace in a Pod to participate in our Peace in a Poll series, 
where you can voice your opinions on current events and various topics. If you'd like to participate as a guest or pitch a question to future participants, go to the link in our Instagram bio. Peas in a Pod is not affiliated with Princeton University.